Good morning, everybody. And to those of you who are watching online as well, great to, great to have you, whatever time of day it is that you're watching. And uh, so we are uh, in a series, it's our summer series, we're working our way through uh, the book of, or the letter of Second Peter, which is found way at the end of your Bible. We're calling it Dying Words because Peter says, I'm not long for the earth. And he says that in chapter one. And so we have some intensity uh, in this uh, in this letter that, uh, that uh, caused us to, to really stop and think, these, these are somebody's dying words. They have concerns about the congregation. Peter, specifically Peter, the disciple, and he has some concerns about the people in the churches that he's writing to because this was a circular letter that went to several churches and would be read out loud in those churches. And it makes sense to pay attention to someone like Peter when he's giving some of his last instructions, and he considers what he's giving to be some of his last instructions. Uh, so uh, today we're looking at verses, chapter 2, verses two, 4 through halfway through verse 10, and um, specifically at how this passage can help us grow our confidence at times when our faith feels shaky or when We've lost some confidence in our faith because of doubts, temptation, whatever it might be, failures in our life, and we might be tempted to kind of walk away or it not have a prominent place in our life. This passage is about building up our confidence again. And so because understanding the Bible doesn't have to be a mystery and understanding our, our place, our role in God's story, I want to encourage you to open your Bibles and turn to 2 Peter chapter 2. And if you don't have a Bible with you, that's fine. We have Bibles in the seat rack in front of you. They're the NIV. We'll be reading from the NIV if you're using a smartphone or tablet device. And uh, it's on page 1126, 1126 in those Bibles. And, uh, but it's, it's way at the end of the Bible. So uh, a couple of our five ochres are going to read our scripture as we usually do today. So let's, let's watch and follow along as they're reading. Second Peter chapter 2. Verses 4 through 10a. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but sent them to hell, putting them in chains of darkness to be held for judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world when he brought the flood on its ungodly people, but protected Noah, a preacher of righteousness, and seven others, if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah by burning them to ashes and made them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly, and if he rescued Lot, a righteous man, who was distressed by the depraved conduct of the lawless, for that righteous man living among them day after day was tormented in his righteous soul by the lawless deeds he saw and heard. If this is so, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to hold the unrighteous for punishment on the day of judgment. This is especially true of those who follow the corrupt desire of the flesh and despise authority. All right, it is not an easy passage to deal with, as you can see. It uh, feels very Old Testament prophet type of, uh, of teaching there. But we're going we're gonna to slowly work our way through this. And I really hope you'll come away with an appreciation for what Peter is writing there and a greater appreciation for other passages like this in the Bible. And you'll get some tools to kind of, kind of deal with that. So Peter, we know from uh, everything up till this point in the letter, Peter is concerned that some people are going to be influenced by false teachers in the church. And there may be some false teachers outside of the church. And 
he is obviously concerned that some of them may be influenced, that they might walk away from their faith, walk away from their relationship with Christ. And the reality is that quitting is oftentimes contagious. It can be very contagious. And, um, and you have to wonder, uh, the, earlier in the passage, we'll look at it in a few moments, it says some, some will walk, or many will walk away. You have to wonder if some have already begun to walk away from the faith, and almost surely some have. That's part of the concern that Peter has. And so when I think of, of quitting as a contagion, uh, I think back to my biggest experience with this uh, goes back to 10th grade. And uh, in 10th grade, it was the first time that I thought about walking away from the sport that I loved, which was football. And uh, I completely expected that I would play, you know, all the way through high school. I'd hoped, you know, maybe, maybe I can play in college as a kid. And even in high school, I thought about that. And, and so, uh, you know, this was, this was something that was really, really important to me. But it was 10th grade. It was the end of the school year. It was spring practice. I don't think they have that up north. Uh, maybe they used to. I don't even know if they have it in Miami anymore where I grew up. Uh, but we would have, at the end of the school year, five weeks of grueling practice with no games. <laughs> it was, like, horrible. It was just a terrible thing. You know, it would end with what they call a jamboree. I think eight teams. You'd play two quarters. So five weeks of practice with the one thing that you're looking forward to is playing in a game. And, and there was hardly anything like that. But we had a problem that year because 120 people came out for spring practice. I don't even think we had enough equipment for 120 people. You know, what do you do as a coach? Well, you, you can do cuts, but there was a no-cut policy. And I don't know if that was a school policy. I don't know if it was the, the policy in our league or in South Florida. I don't know. But there was a no-cut policy, or at least that's what I was told. So the coaches came up with a plan. And the plan was to create the most grueling experience that you can imagine. So the people would quit, and it worked. So within days, 10 people quit. And within a few more days, 20, and then 30, and then 40, and then 50, and then 60. Half the people that came out within a couple of weeks were gone. And I'm sure that really helped because they, you know, I don't think we did pads for at least the first couple of weeks. So by the time we had to put pads and helmets on, they had enough, and uh, they'd gotten rid of all these people. So I remember in the midst of this, as people are quitting, it's, it's a pretty vivid memory that I have sitting in the cafeteria at school and sitting with some friends. I think they were primarily players that were sitting around me, and one of the my teammates came in, one of the guys I'd played with uh, in previous years, and he came in, and someone at the table said, he just quit today. I remember looking at him, I'm like, him? Not somebody I expected would quit. And that was the moment that I thought, well, that could be me next. I mean, like, like almost, like, I'm very vulnerable to not making it. Now, it was worse for me in some ways because I had been issued a helmet that had a bump right here that on the very first day 
rubbed off my skin. <laughs> and I don't know how long I waited to ask for a new helmet, but by the time I got it, it was too late. Every day, a scab would form, and every day I'd go to practice, and it would tear the scab off. So, you know, I had this bleeding, painful head in practice. And I thought, maybe, maybe I could quit. Now, I, I didn't quit, and I'm not bragging, because I'll, I'll tell you one where I did quit. I went out for soccer once knowing nothing about how to play the game, was in one practice, re recognized I know nothing about how to play this game, and I quit after one practice. So <laughs> it, it, I'm, I'm not bragging. All right. But through the years, I've had similar moments with my faith. And uh, one of them was my senior year in high school. One of our football captains, he was one of the most bold Christians that I knew. And so I, I looked up to him a lot and hung out with him a lot. And he was also a spiritual leader in our school. And I don't know what happened, but after the football season, whoosh, he walked away from his faith. Looked him up on Facebook, and he's back. So really, really thankful uh, for that. When I was in seminary, uh, a local pastor who would come and speak, he and his wife, on marriage, to the married students, had a marital affair uh, a few years later. And it was devastating uh, to both Lois and, and me. Uh, when, uh, when people tell their deconversion stories, which is a thing in the last few years, uh, you may not be aware of, but a lot of people who walk away from their faith, it used to be that they would kind of go off into the horizon. Now they become social media uh, influencers. Not all of them, but there have been some that have, like, shaken me when they walk away and they talk about why they walk away. And so I've had those kind of experiences, and it, it hit me hard. And I don't know if you've had that kind of experience, but what happens is it begins to make you feel vulnerable. It makes you kind of, uh, it, it impacts your confidence in your, you know, are my, are my foundations strong enough that I'm not going to walk away, that some temptation is not going to grab hold of me, or just kind of the whole, I'm not going to be pulled into the stream of the way that our world is going, or that the doubts that I still have and that everybody has, that some of the doubts that I have aren't going to finally get a hold of me and cause me to walk away from my, our faith. So, again, I bring this up because of something that Peter says in the passage that we looked at last week. And it helps us understand what he's talking about today, which is admittedly, if you listen to, you know, condemning, you know, demons to hell, you know, and things like this, you know, can, can help us understand how to understand this passage, how to take it in and how to get something out of it. So one of the things he says in the passage we looked at last week in verse two, he says, many will follow their depraved conduct of the false teachers. Many people are going to follow them. And he's not talking about just general people. He should talk about them, the people who are listening to Peter's letter being read. Many will, and almost certainly some have, and it's probably shaking them up. And so this passage that we just read a few moments ago is intended to bolster their confidence. It's intended to give them strength for their journey. And so um, Peter wants to assure them build up their confidence, and at the same time, warn them a little bit, especially in next week's passage, warn them a little bit about 
just kind of, it's, it's not a win to walk away from your faith. No matter what it is you're going through, that is not a winning strategy for dealing with things. So Peter wants to do this. And maybe you need Peter's message today. Maybe you don't. Maybe you don't feel vulnerable. You will at some point. So maybe this is one you put into the filing cabinet. So here's Peter's message. We can be assured of persevering in our faith, making it to the end, because God is aware of what's happening. That's what he's telling you. God is aware of what's going on among you, and he's at work doing something about it. All right, so we're going to see in a few moments what God's awareness is about and what he does about it. So um, to get the overall sense of this passage, you may have already noticed it, but to get the overall sense of this passage, I want to give you something that you can kind of use in your toolkit of Bible reading. Sometimes grammar comes in handy. All right, now if you don't like grammar and the very word has caused you to stop listening, I'm going to make it fun. We're going to have a little bit of fun. But seeing the structure of the passage, sometimes we've done that where we'll put the structure of the passage and it helps you see how the passage is put together. What are the main points? And the structure of this passage really helps you to see how Peter has laid this out, what his thinking is, and where he's taking us. And so to do it, I'm going to, uh, we're going to, I'm, I, I just went online and, and I found um, some examples of this in movies, of this grammatical structure. I don't know what made me think of doing that, but I did, you know. I, I put in what the grammatical structure is, and then I put movies, and, and I picked a few movies. So we're going to have a little quiz, see if you can tell me where these movies come from, and notice what grammatical feature is in all of these, the same grammatical feature that's in this passage. So if you build it, he will come. Field of dreams, yes, okay. If it bleeds, he will kill it. We can kill it. Predator, all right. Next, if you strike me down, I shall become more powerful than you could possibly imagine. <laughs> Star Wars, I found out last night that was Obi-Wan Kenobi, so that was my Obi-Wan Kenobi voice. <laughs> if I'm not back in five minutes, just wait longer. <laughs> Ace Ventura, pet detective. This is my, this is, those two are my favorite, that last one and this one. If I were a rich man, yubby dibby 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 dumb, all day long I'd biddy biddy bum. Fiddler on the roof. Yes. Okay. So what word occurs over and over again in all of those? If. What word never occurs but is assumed in this? If you know your grammar, you'll know what it is. Then, right. It doesn't occur ever, but you could have put the word then in everyone. So what's the grammatical structure? What's, what's it called, the grammatical thing? Anybody know? You're afraid to say it if you know it because everybody's going to look at you and say, teacher's pet, right? If then is one way it's called, yeah. Um, yeah, maybe, yeah. Um, and one, of the, one of the terms that's used for it is it's a conditional uh, statement or a conditional clause, if then. All right, so, yeah, so that's, that's what, what it is. And, um, and so let's look at the passage here, and I'll show it to you. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, if he did not spare the ancient world, but protected Noah, that's another you could put an if in there, if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, 
And if he rescued Lot, if this is so, then. Now, an interesting thing is, this is how translation works of the Bible. They, of any ancient, or, now, any language, any language, if you're like, if you speak Spanish and it gets translated into English, you can't do it word for word. You have to add things to make sense and in another language. So this is the only if in the passage, but it's structured that you can add the if. So the translators go, let's put it in there so people can see it carefully. Uh, this is not even, you can't even find this in the original language. It's just a help to kind of get us to the conclusion. If this is so, then, all right? So just a little, there's going to be several Bible geek stuff for my fellow Bible geeks in this sermon. That's, that's one of them for you. Say thank you. Okay, a lot of Bible geeks. All right, good. Um, and then he gives five examples, and we'll be looking at the five examples, the if, the if, five examples. Uh, but what's it, what's it all moving towards? Look at verse 9. If this is so, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to hold the unrighteous for punishment on the day of judgment. That's what it's all leading to. That's the words of assurance. Given what came before it, you see, this is not about like, yeah, we're going to get them. No, this is a word of assurance to people saying God does these two things. He's aware of what's happening. He does something about it. What does he do about it? He protects the righteous. He will bring justice on the evil. All right, those are the two, two things. So again, why is Peter emphasizing judgment and protection? Because they're feeling vulnerable to being manipulated. They're feeling um, they need confidence in their faith. If you don't have confidence in your faith, that's a first step in walking away from it. That is one of the first steps in walking away. So why are they feeling a lack of confidence. Well, probably because of what's happening and partly because of what Peter says in the letter. So let's have that next screen. I'm jumping ahead a little bit here, but he says in the earlier verses, he says, false, prof pro false prophets are among you. <laughs> or I think it's teachers. They're, they're already among you. Uh, they secretly introduce heresies. In other words, it's not, it's not going to be obvious. We'll talk about this next week. Many will follow them. Not a couple are going to be fooled. No, many. Are you among the many? You know, that's what he's trying to, to raise their sense of urgency. We've seen this all throughout this letter. They will exploit you. These people are exploiters of people and, and watch out. They're, they will. So there's warning in there. So Peter makes this point. If God judges evil in the past and if he protects the righteous in the past, then you can expect that he'll do the same thing now. He will judge evil. He will protect the righteous. They can be confident because God is aware of what's happening, and he is actually doing something about it. All right, so on the one hand, Peter appeals to God's judgment to encourage them. And here's the problem. Uh, Bible stories of God's judgment of the wicked often trouble us. This passage is not, if you know a person you're talking to and you're trying to encourage them, 
like a modern Western person, this is not usually the passage. We were talking about this at Pizza with the Pastor last night. There are churches that will never, ever preach on 2 Peter 2. It's too rough. It requires too much explanation. And we kind of like to dive into those things. Um, because, we, because eventually, people are going to read passages like this, and they're not going to be equipped to be able to read passages like this. So I'm hoping today we'll help you, kind of help equip you for reading passages like this. So Bible stories of God's judgment often trouble us, and by us I mean modern Western people. We, we don't really like them very much. Uh, in fact, uh, one of the common themes in the deconversion stories that people put on social media and start podcasts about and all that sort of thing is that God seems to be a cruel and capricious God and, and look at this story. You can go, you can, there are entire websites devoted to debunking Christianity by finding um, just the, the most horrific passages. And yeah, as you read it, you go, that, that doesn't really come across. It's very horrific. And saying, this is the God that you follow, you know, that kind of a thing. So, um, it's real, this sense of, of, of discomfort when talking about God's judgment. And so in our story of God course, which, by the way, is something we encourage everybody to go through because it gives you a framework for understanding the Bible. One of the things that we do in there is we spend a lot of time talking about God's judgment because I know this. And, uh, and maybe, maybe more than we should, but it's been an issue in my own life. So, you know, it usually works its way out in various, various things. So um, we spend a lot of time. I can't go into everything that we talk about there uh, in that course, but I want to I, I just focus on one idea. It's not going to fix everything for you, but I think it's an important idea. And, and it's, it's this. The examples in the Bible of God bringing judgment down on people are few and far between in the Bible. Now you may, I mean, if you, if you list them all, it could look like a lot. But this is a very big book that covers a lot of history. And I'm not saying that knowing that these stories are few and far between, just like, whoop, the problem is gone. That's not what I'm saying. But I think it's a, a really important point. And if you look at the examples that Peter gives, I think it, it helps you see it's how much space there is in between these examples. Because these are the typical examples that people give of God's judgment, and Peter appeals to them. So um, I'm going to stop on one of these because it does create some interesting problems, and then I'll try to get everybody, rope everybody back into what we're doing here. But, but here's, here's the first example. These are kind of given in chronological order. So the very first example that Jesus gives probably, almost certainly, goes to Genesis chapter 6, to the early verses of Genesis chapter 6. Really weird passage that everybody scratches their head like, what in the world is it talking about here? These angels who come down, these are spiritual beings that come down and have relations with women and have kids who are like giants and all this kind of thing. And you're like, what is this? But this, is, this goes way back to prehistoric times. This is before there's probably anybody even has an alphabet. This is going way, way back to prehistoric times. Now, for my fellow Bible geeks, here's the other Bible geeky thing. Um, he is, says, this is an example. And if you go through the Bible, you're not going to find this example. 
You, Genesis 6 is what everybody thinks it is, most people. But Genesis 6 doesn't exactly say that. But in his day, in Peter's day, and for a couple hundred years, the common Jewish interpretation of Genesis 6 was exactly what he says here. And it's in some of the writings from that time. And so if we hold that the Bible is without error in anything that it intends to say, then we, about the only conclusion you can come to is to say, well, the common Jewish interpretation of that day was correct. And you can see kind of the logic of it. If spiritual beings actually came and had relations with women, it makes sense that God would lock them up, all right? That, like, they have committed a huge thing, all right? So it makes sense, and so we just accept that, okay? I'm going to stop there. There's some more that I could say because one of the, well, I started to say it, what I wasn't going to say. I'm just going to stop right there. I'm just going to stop right there. All right. So, uh, so he say, okay, let's, let's go back now. We're, we're, we're showing that these are few and far between. All right. So one goes way back to prehistoric times. Another one goes way, way back as well. It's the second one. It's Noah. Uh, the next one, thousands of years later, Sodom and Gomorrah. Uh, and if you, there's a little, little bonus on dealing with God's judgment, God's judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah, go back and read the passage and you, your own sense of justice will come up and say, oh yeah, these people were bad, <laughs> really bad. All right, so, you know, that, that can help in, in dealing with some of those feelings. Uh, but it's the same with, you can go back to all the examples of God's epic judgment where he breaks in. Now, God judges in other ways. We, we talk about this in our story of God, of course, because Paul talks about it in Romans chapter 1. Probably the main way that God judges is he allows us to be our own gods and create our own world. That is a judgment of God. The Bible says that is a judgment of God against our evil. He allows us to do that. And so, but every once in a while, God breaks in, and what he's doing at those times is he's saying, well, here's the trajectory of your life. It's not going to end well. I am going to interrupt your life right now, because it wasn't going to end well. I know that. <laughs> All right. So, that's another way of kind of looking at some of this. But usually, there's hundreds of years between these episodes, and I'd venture a guess, this is just my guess that less than 1% of the Hebrew people in Bible, in, in, that the Bible talks about ever saw an example of God's judgment coming down like this. It's just really not, it just doesn't happen that often. On the other hand, um, Bible people, uh, in fact, let's get the next screen up there. Bible people don't struggle with God's act of judgment. I think, I can't think of an example in the whole Bible where Someone says, oh, God seems to be so cruel because he judges people. But the Bible is filled with people calling God out and calling him basically, you know, for being passive. I mean, the Psalms are raw. I mean, the Psalms, they're, they're, there's one where the psalmist angry that God won't do anything about the evil all around him that's impacting him, his family, his country. He says, what are you doing? Are you taking a nap? Would you wake up? 
show your concern. All right, so that's what people in Bible times struggle with. It's actually what people in all times have struggled with until modern Western times. It's how people that don't live in our Western culture, that's what they struggle with in other countries. Um, that's what they really struggle with because they suffer so many evils. Uh, we're, we're fairly kind of protected in our country and because of our affluence as a country. So when years ago we did a read through the Bible uh, challenge and about 150 people went through it. I don't know how many finished, uh, but there's two places you give up when you're trying to read through the whole Bible. One is Leviticus, the very third book of the Bible, which is terrible. It's like, no, I can't, I can't make it through this. The next time is the prophets, because the prophets, like <clears throat> in this Bible, you know, just guessing here, but the prophets are about that many pages, <laughs> and they're not always the most linear thinkers. And if you're a linear thinker, well, I know we got a lot of them because a bunch of you are engineers and teachers and stuff, and I'm a linear thinker. It, it gets pretty crazy, and it's like, I don't know what you're trying to say, and I don't know where you're going with this, and please get to the point, and now you seem to be saying the same thing over and over. It's really, really difficult. But one of the things that my wife Lois, when we were going through that, that I'll never forget, is one day she just looked at me and she goes, Henry, this is killing me. It, it just as I'm reading through the prophets, it just feels like God is a permissive parent. And, and she elaborates, she goes, he's constantly threatening and never doing anything about it. <laughs> it's like you have to keep reading and reading, centuries go by before he does anything about it. Now, it's not that my wife is like, you know, I want him to do something about it. In her defense, I think she just wants God to stop threatening. <laughs> I think that was it. Just stop threatening. If you're going to, if you're going to threat, follow through because this is really bothering me, you know, as I'm reading this. Okay. By the way, this is how we should read the Bible. It causes us to ask questions. It causes us, it's not some kind of pious experience where everything is like we, we explain everything away so that it makes sense for us and everything is good. It should be difficult. It's an ancient text from God, from God's perspective. And our perspective, we're not, we just, there's a lot that we don't get from God's perspective. So Peter brings up these big examples of judgment. But let's, let's go back to the problem. Modern Western people struggle with the idea of judgment. But it's not because we're more enlightened. We think we're more enlightened. I'm not more enlightened than Peter. You're not more enlightened than Peter. Um, consider that it might be because the philosophy and worldview of our world has a problem with judgment. And that worldview is ingrained into the way we think. It's like, it's so much, of the so much in the water of our culture, in the, in the very air that we breathe, that we find it hard to even imagine that there's another way of thinking. That's the problem with modern Western people. We think we have arrived, and we have trouble imagining how those backward people down in South America, those backward people out in Africa, those backward people in Indonesia, they need to catch up to us. It is the height of arrogance. It is the height of, of arrogance. And reality um, is that you almost always, in all ages, in Africa, Indonesia, the United States, wherever you are, you almost always have to break out of the prevailing worldview on so many things 
in order to understand God's perspective and have his perspective shape your perspective. So Peter says, God will judge the wicked. He assumes that that's going to encourage them. And he says that these people that are trying to exploit them and trick them and pull them into their net, they are going to be judged by God. Um, And that may not encourage you, but it was meant to encourage you. And it certainly was encouraging to them. And so I just want to suggest this, and just as you deal with the difficulties in Scripture, if God's retributive justice, that's where he comes down, you've got God's restorative justice, which are the rules that he makes so that people can thrive for human thriving and for recovering human thriving. But when his retributive justice, which is about 10% of the times that justice comes across in the Bible. So God's retributive justice, if that's an insurmountable problem to you, may I suggest that you at least consider the possibility that the problem might be yours and not God's. That's all. I can say. That's all I can offer to you. So God is going to judge evil. He's going to judge evil people. He's not passive in light of evil. He may not, we may not like his timing. We may not even like his methods. But we can be sure that he is going to exact justice. But there's another side to the coin of what is causing vulnerability. So if, um, here we go. If one side of the coin is the questions of God's passivity, passiveness, in the face of injustice and evil, the other side of the coin is the question of whether God will do anything to protect his people. Is he going to do anything to protect his people? Because there's people falling like flies. The whole country of Israel sometimes goes their own way. Is God going to do anything to protect his people? That's, that's a really important question in Scripture. And if I'm feeling vulnerable to quitting in my faith, is God going to protect me? Is God going to keep me from quitting? It's a big question. And I think they're asking this question. So that's why I brought up the, the my governor can beat up your governor line. You, for those of you who are old enough to remember when Jesse Ventura, and if you lived here, was governor of Minnesota, I don't think there were memes back then, but if there had been, it would have been everywhere because everybody used it as a joke. It's like, my governor can beat up your governor. And that was true until Arnold Schwarzenegger won <laughs> in, uh, in California. It was at the end of Ventura, so they, didn't, they never had to duke it out. Uh, they didn't really cross paths uh, on that. Um, but uh, it, that's built on the whole idea, my dad can beat up your dad, right? Because we always think our dad is invincible when we're little. And so, but imagine with me that you don't see your dad. You're little, but you don't see your dad as being invincible. And, and the reason you don't see your dad as being invincible is because, well, it's because you're in a war-torn country, you've had to flee uh, all along the way, your dad has had to humble himself and grovel. Um, you've gone to a refugee camp, you've been living there for years, your dad is not on the upper echelons of leadership in there, so he gets abused all the time. And from a kid's perspective, you see weakness, but in reality, he's a hero. You may not see that until you get much older. He's a hero because he has been willing to do all that to protect his family. 
But when that is your experience, you're not going around saying, my dad can beat up your dad, right? Well, put that into the spiritual realm for these people and for the Israelites and people in the Bible. A lot of times it's not like my God can beat up your God because it looks like the other gods are winning. And you, you have to trust that God is more powerful and you have to trust that he cares, but there are a lot of times where it just shakes you and you go, I'm not, I'm not sure uh, about this. So you're waiting for God to intervene. You're waiting for God to step in and do something. Bring some justice because this is so unjust. So Peter talks about this side of the coin as well. So he gives the examples. Three of his examples are about judgment, judgment, judgment. And two of his examples are about protection. He protected Noah and his family. And he protected Lot. Now, here's another time I just need to stop. For those of you who have read the Bible a lot, this is one of those scratch. I, I brought this up last night and I said... I said, does anybody, having read Genesis, where Lot's story is told, come away with an idea that Lot is a, a righteous man? <laughs> Somebody look at me and go, been reading the Bible all our lives, you go, no. <laughs> because you, you read Lot's story, you're like, this is a mealy mouth. This is, he is like the profile of the person that Jesus says, I'm going to spit out of my mouth. And yet, Peter says, that righteous man struggled so much with the lawlessness around him. Now, in Peter's defense, not that I have to defend Peter, but in Peter's defense, when Abraham learns that God is going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, and he knows that Lot lives in Sodom, he starts asking this question. Remember, he says, what if there's 50 righteous people in Sodom? Would you destroy it? God said, no, I wouldn't. I wouldn't destroy a whole city if there were 50 righteous people there. 40, 30, 20, 10. God says, no, I wouldn't. Stop asking. There weren't 10. There was just Lot and his family. But they're considered righteous enough to save, right? And so they're saved. Uh, well, kind of. Uh, his wife didn't quite make it. Um, but that's, that's the idea here. So if you struggle with, you know, because everybody does, like, if you know the story, you go, why would Peter say this? He's, he's not talking about the merits of his wishy-washiness of lots or anything like that. He's probably talking about kind of like Abraham was wishy-washy as well, but he was declared righteous by God because of his faith. And Lot didn't, like, buy in to the culture around him. It bothered him. Um, so th that's, that's to, to help you kind of deal with that. So um, Peter is saying God protects his people, and the implication is that God will keep those that are his in those churches from falling away. So now we're wading into some deep theological waters here, right? Is God going to keep his own from ever falling away? Can we walk, can we actually, if we have faith in Christ, can we actually walk away from our faith? Now I could you know, depending on where you come from theologically, you can bolster one case or the other. I'm just going to bolster one of the cases because this is about confidence, right? So in Romans 8, we looked at it a few months ago. Paul goes way out of his way and gives like every example that you can possibly imagine to say, no, there is nothing that can separate you from God's love. You are God's. He's yours. There's nothing that can separate you. 
Uh, Jesus had a very similar strong, maybe even stronger. There's, you, can, you can find some... Um, that you can, you can find some ways of kind of getting around what Paul says. It's really hard to get around what, what Jesus says. So there's these strong assurances. Let's, uh, let's go to the next screen. Here's what Jesus says. <clears throat> some people said to Jesus, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Messiah, tell us plainly. Jesus answered, I did tell you, but you did not believe. The works I do are my fa- in my Father's name testify about me, but you do not believe. Why? Because you're not my sheep. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my hand. Those are words of assurance to people whose faith is shaken, and they're wondering, can I walk away from this thing? Uh, Paul, in Ephesians chapter 1, says, When you believed, when you put your faith in Christ, uh, obviously, he's saying genuinely, you, you genuinely believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession, which speaks to when Christ returns, guaranteeing it. So those are, those are really, I, I, it's hard to get any stronger than that. Yes, there are passages that you can put up against this. And while there are theological disagreements on the details of this, Peter's point, at the very least, is this. At the very least, that we can probably all agree on this. We are not on our own when it comes to staying true to God. You need to understand, you are not on your own. If you think, I've just got to muscle through this, if you're shaken and you're afraid you're going to walk away because you're not that strong, God wants you to hear, you are not on your own. God is at work to keep us. And while we have a part in staying strong, we do have a part in that, it's by God's power, not by our efforts, that we stay in the faith. And Peter's kind of dealt with this in chapter 1. He says, I want to, this one is like big point of chapter 1, I want you to confirm that your faith is real. What's the evidence that your faith is real? Changed character. And what's the evidence of changed character? It's evidence of God's miraculous power to save you. By his power, by his grace. Not by your efforts, not by your religion, not by your, I'm doing this for you, God. By his grace, freely given to be received by faith. <laughs> he says, and when that happens and you receive it by faith, deposit a seal, a deposit guaranteeing that you're going to make it to the end. In a sense, Peter is saying that as children of God, we can say to false teachers who are trying to lure us away or powers that are trying to lure us away, or culture that's trying to lure us away, we can say to inanimate, adamant objects, my God is, can beat up your God. <laughs> my God can beat up your God. And we can stand strong on that. And one of the reasons we can stand strong on that is what 
you know, we're reminded every single week as we listen to the scripture and then we begin our response together. So we're going to begin our response to God's word by once again being reminded of what Jesus wanted to, wanted to remind us constantly. He wanted to remind us, if you take the bread of communion, he wanted to remind us that his body was broken for us. We thank you, Jesus, for your body broken for us. And he said, this is my blood. It has been shed so that you can experience the forgiveness of sins. Thank you, Jesus, for shedding your blood. Father, we thank you. We thank you that you are at work. We thank you that you are a God of justice. For, for any of us who struggle with your justice, Father, help us to understand and help us to see even in judgment to see your grace and see your glory. And Father, um, I pray that as a congregation, I pray for parents, parents of kids, parents of adults, but parents who are following you and their kids aren't. And their hearts are so broken. I pray that you give them encouragement. And I pray for those kids, whatever age they are, that they, they would recognize that it is not a winning strategy to walk away from you. A God of grace, a God of love, a God that offers us paradise. Not by what we do, but because of what he has done for us. So, Father, whether we're shaken for ourselves or shaken for others, help, give us confidence. Give us strength. Give us perspective. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.